All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Today's actually going to be the last week in part one of the series in Acts that we've been in. We're going to take four different parts and do this whole book in four different parts. So today we wrap up Acts part one. Really excited about chapter six. While you're turning there, uh, man, let me, just, let me just say this. We love as human beings, I don't know if you've noticed this, we love as human beings to romanticize things, don't we? We love to idealize and romanticize things. So uh, one of the things that I romanticized and idealized uh, not long ago was getting a puppy. Uh, how many of you had a dog growing up? Raise your hand, right? A lot of us, many of us. If you had cats, no one's interested, right? They're terrible animals. Um, that's your fault for buying that animal, right? You have to live with the consequences of your decision. So those of us that grew up with a dog, we, we, we're like, I, I don't know if you've, if you've had that thing happen in your family or in your, in your house with your roommates. We're like, man, it would be really fun if we could get a puppy again, wouldn't it? Like you just think about how cute they are. So this was actually a few years ago. My wife and I had that thing happen where we started to romanticize that idea. And uh, how many of you have actually since then went and got a puppy, Right. If you haven't, do not do that. That is a horrible, horrible decision, and here's why. My wife and I are like, let's just go look. We'll just glance at the dogs. We're not going to actually pick one up, right? We'll just go look at them. We heard that there was like an adopt-a-dog thing just around the corner from our house. So we went, and we found this puppy, and man, he was just ridiculously cute. So you guessed it. We took him home, and it was a total train wreck. It was just a nightmare. It was fun for like 13 hours, and then it was just horrible. Um, our dog, for some reason, uh, would just poop all over the house, right? And I know you're like, well, just potty train your dog. L- listen, I'm not like the dog whisperer, all right? I tried, and I failed at potty training my dog. So he would just poop all over the house. He would chew up my house, like really nice pieces of furniture. He would chew up. Uh, about 3 to 5 a.m. every morning, he would do this really high-pitched whine that was like slightly less high than a dog whistle, and he would do it out of his kennel, right? And it was just horribly annoying. And really, the straw that broke the camel's back, by the way, I didn't kill this dog. I just gave him away um, to someone more patient than me. But the straw that broke the camel's back was he kept running away <laughs> and getting into other people's houses in my neighborhood through their doggy doors. And pooping in their houses too. <laughs> I, I'd get phone calls of like, your dog sucks and I hate you. Come pick your dog up, right? So that... We love to romanticize things, right? It might be getting a dog. Or some of you ladies uh, who are now married, you, you grew up and you romanticized marriage, right? You're like, man, marriage is going to be great. I've seen the notebook. What could possibly go wrong? And then you got married, right? And let's just be honest, like his breath stinks and he passes gas underneath the sheets and then like pulls the covers over your head like a junior high kid, Right? And he's just nothing like Ryan Gosling at all. It's just a horrible, right? So, so we, romant, we take things that we think are going to be beautiful, we think are going to, and they are oftentimes beautiful, but often not in the way that they think they're going to be. We do this with all sorts of things. We do this with uh, certain lifestyles or singleness or marriage. We do this with various places to live. We do it with various historical time periods. Like, wouldn't it be great to live 300 years ago when life was more simple, And you only had to travel to the river 48 times with a bucket of water to take a bath, right? I mean, it was just very simple and beautiful in those days. So here's what we do. We romanticize and idealize things. And one of the things that Christians are really good at romanticizing is the early church. 
One of the things that we love to kind of put on this idealistic pedestal and think really, really highly of is the early church. And it's not hard to see why, because honestly, the early church was pretty amazing. Let me just remind you of some of the things that were happening. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit of God coming in power on on the early church and filling them with fullness and with authority to carry out ministry. We see signs and wonders and miracles happening left and right. There are dead people coming back from the dead. There are people that have been lame for over 40 years that are now starting to walk. There are people just being moved and overcome by the the various signs and wonders that the Spirit of God was doing. Uh, Not only that, but the church, we see at the very end of Acts 2, kind of like the the honeymoon phase of the church, the, the early church was amazingly, if we had to pick one word, devoted. They were devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to Jesus and they were devoted to one another, right? So they were actually gathering daily and gathering weekly in the temple. So every day in house to house and then weekly, they're gathering together to worship Jesus. I mean, they're just amazingly devoted to this thing called Christianity and to Jesus. And, and you know, we talk about here at Frontline, we talk about like a regular attender is someone who shows up about twice a month, right? So there is a little bit of a disconnect between us and them. They were just incredibly devoted. We see in the book of Acts at the end of chapter two, just people repenting of sin and turning to Jesus by the droves. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. 3,000 people get saved in Acts two. Uh, Peter stands up in Acts chapter three, preaches the gospel. 5,000 people come to know Jesus. And this just continues to happen as the church progresses. And here's the crazy part. Even in the face of opposition, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of cultural major pushback, the church continues to expand and the mission of God advances. So it's, it's not really hard to see why we idealize and romanticize the early church because honestly, it just feels amazing right? Those were the good old days. That was, that was when God was really at work. Well, let me just tell you that chapter six is so beautiful because what Luke, the author of Acts, is going to do for us is he's going to actually help us see that the early church, although there were some beautiful things happening, it was incredibly messy and incredibly broken. I love that Luke is not going to give us a revisionist history of the early church. I mean, think about it. He doesn't have a lot of space to write. He's handwriting this, this history of the church, and he chooses to include some things that if you and I were writing, we probably wouldn't include in the story, but he does so for our benefit. He, he doesn't do plastic surgery on the bride of Christ and fix her flaws to present this thing that isn't real, that isn't actually the way it was. He's going to show us all the flaws and all the nitty-gritty details of the early church. So if you're with me, go to chapter 6, look at verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to verse 7. Now, in these days, it says, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. That's the the 12 apostles. They summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We're going to read a lot about Stephen, learn a lot about him as the, as the book unfolds. They chose Stephen, uh, and then look, they also chose a man named Philip, the evangelist. You're going to learn a lot about that guy. And Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So here's what I want to do. I just want to pull out four quick things out of this text that I think will be helpful for imperfect people living inside of a very, very imperfect church, a very imperfect community where there's a lot of sin and there's a lot of brokenness, and there's a lot of failure, and there's a lot of mistakes. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing I want you to see. Every church has problems. Can I get an amen from anybody on that, right? That like makes me as a pastor incredibly happy and grateful. Every church, it's not just our church, every church has major problems. Look at verse one. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a, a what happened? A complaint arose. I love that that's actually in the story of the early church. It's not all like fantastic gospel explosion, unbelievable mission. It's no, and there were complaints in the early church. This is incredible for a couple reasons. Number one, the, the early church was actually led by the 12 apostles. These were guys that were handpicked by Jesus. They were actually personally discipled by Jesus, and they're leading this church. I'm like, I, I, I love our elders at Frontline. They're all amazing. Uh, I would take a bullet for any of our, our pastors here, but none of us are as good as the 12 apostles, right? Like, we're, we're pretty jacked up, and we make some mistakes, and we do things that are, that are often wrong or don't make a lot of sense, but these guys, these are the 12 apostles leading the church, and look what happened. There's a complaint that arose underneath their leadership. And listen, this complaint wasn't just kind of a, a minor complaint like, ah, the coffee's gross, and I don't like the color of the carpet. I mean, this is not like your typical church complaints. You're like, oh, the parking is horrible. Uh, yeah, the parking is terrible. All those things may be legitimate, but actually that's not the complaint. It's not a preferential issue. There's a real problem in this early church. What was it? Well, we'll read in verse 1 that the Hellenists arose and they were complaining that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, what's all that about? Uh, in the early church, I mean, think about this in the first century, there wasn't anything like social, social security. There wasn't anything like Medicare, Medicaid. And so if you're an older woman and your husband, if you're married, uh, the primary caregiver in your family, if he passed away, then it was really difficult, maybe even impossible, for you to take care of yourself. You had no government assistance whatsoever. And so the early church, really going back to its Old Testament roots, realizing that, that we are called to, to care for the widow and the orphan, the early church created the system and the structure for qualified, godly, older widows to be cared for, and they would do this in a, a weekly and daily distribution. So 
it's really crazy. Like, imagine if you're an older widow, you'd show up to the church on Sunday, and there would be a weekly financial stipend that you would get. Basically, like, here's your weekly finances. You know, here, this will take you through the end of the week. And then there was a daily distribution of food and of kind of those perishable items that, that would go bad quickly. And so what was happening in the early church is that a group, a a specific group of widows were being overlooked and neglected while another group of widows was being served and resourced well. What was happening? Well, one group of widows, the group that was being neglected, was actually the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews that had left kind of the city of Jerusalem and then had moved back into Jerusalem. So these were Greek-speaking Jews, and they didn't just speak a different language from the Hebrews who spoke Aramaic, but they actually had a very different culture and a very different way of living. And historically, the Hellenists and the Hebrews did not get along together at all. There was a lot of uh, animosity and a lot of cultural difficulty between these, these two groups. So the fact that one particular group of widows is being overlooked, some scholars have said actually what was happening is that these Hellenist widows, they were actually being treated from a racist standpoint and the leaders in the church were kind of bent by this racism and they were overlooking these ladies who were qualified godly women that should have been helped. They were overlooking them and only caring for their own, the, the, the Hebrews. So some scholars will say, yes, it was racism. Actually, what was happening is the early church was sinning big time here. And then other scholars, they're going to say, no, it wasn't sin. It wasn't racism. It was just the fact that the church had grown so fast and so rapidly, it had become so complex and messy that the, the systems and structures were starting to break and new systems needed to be created. So either way, I don't know which one is right, either way, whether it was a horrific sin on the part of the leaders or if it was just a a giant mistake on the part of the leaders, there was a major problem in the early church and literally there were widows that were going hungry because of this problem. Now, here's the point that I want to make to you, and there's a lot of different directions we could go with this, but here's the point I want to make to you, that if the early church had problems, if they experienced difficulty, if it was tumultuous for the early church, then listen, it's going to be messy for you and I as we try to do this thing called the church. It's going to be messy. It's going to be tumultuous. Things are going to happen that are sinful. People are going to be offended. People are going to fall through the cracks. People are going to be overlooked. People are going to be burned. People are going to be hurt. The church is filled with problems. Here's why. Because the church is filled with people, and people are filled with problems. Sometimes those problems are sinful, and sometimes those problems, they're just mistakes. But you and I, we're both sinful, and we're human, and we make mistakes. And so the church is filled with problems. In fact, a church that doesn't have any problems doesn't have any what? Doesn't have any people right? So that'd be a great church to go to, except the second you did, you screw everything up, right? So every church with a human inside of that church is going to be messy. It's going to be broken. And attempts at community, the more you try to do what the Bible actually calls us to do, it's going to be really, really hard and oftentimes really difficult. 
I think about for me when I got married to my wife and moving from being engaged to being married. And that's like a smaller scale of trying to do community, right? Uh, it's like, okay, there's all these commands in the Bible, these one another commands. And, and all of that felt really easy when I was engaged. And then I got married and we went from one sinner living in my house to two sinners living in my house. And the only other person that's more bullheaded than my wife is me. So you can just imagine like the, the tumultuous first year that we had, we fought about everything and not even big things, right? I'm kind of embarrassed to say the things that we fought about. Like this is all on me. I would, I would get upset at my wife for not screwing the toothpaste lid all the way on, right? She would do this thing where she would like screw it half on and I'm like, it's just a half more turn and it's on, right? It's like all the way on, but you just like lightly put it on there and, and I'd get in this argument with my wife about the toothpaste lid. It's like, what is happening in my marriage right now? Um, we, we would argue about the toilet paper direction. You know, how do you put the toilet paper on? By, by the way, uh, how many of you are over the top toilet paper people, over the top? Everybody else, you're just wrong, all right? <laughs> That's the only way to put toilet paper on. So my wife and I would fight about the littlest things, and it wasn't because like we enjoyed fighting. It was because she was sinful and I was sinful, but we were trying to do community together. We were trying to actually carry out the one another commands of Scripture, and it's really hard, but it's also really beautiful. So here's the thing. As you and I step into this thing called the church, and by the way, when Jesus saved you, he didn't just save you from sin, but he saved you into the church. So as we step into this thing called the church and we try to actually carry out this mission that God has given us to make disciples who make disciples, to love God and love people and push back darkness, as we try to do this, it's going to be messy. It's going to be broken. Things are going to happen because every church has problems. And that leads me to the second thing that I want you to see. Number two, if you're taking notes, stop loving the ideal church and start loving the actual church. Do you know what I mean by that? Stop loving this ideal picture of the church that you have and start loving the actual church as she is. Here's the thing. If you and I have this idealistic picture of the church, then when brokenness comes, when people get overlooked, when the widows are going hungry and people are getting sinned against, you and I will have no patience. We won't be able to stand it because we've got all of these expectations. And really the only thing that we love is not the church as she is, but it's this ideal version of what the church should be. I love the words of Diedrich Bonhoeffer really unpacking what happens when we romanticize the church. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a a German theologian uh, in, in, uh, in the 1940s. He actually was, was killed in a concentration camp in 1945. He wrote this uh, actually about community in the church as we do life together. He says this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idealized community that is to be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves, they enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. 
So here's what happens when you and I step into the church. If, if the early church had this notion, this idealistic perspective that we're just gonna carry out the mission of God, we're never gonna have any issues, we're never gonna have any problems, it's not gonna be messy and difficult as we do life together, then when chapter six hit, it could have turned the church into the most internal, kind of nasal-gaving church that got them off mission, or worse, it could have just caused them to, to fight and fight and fight and eventually just break the thing apart. Instead, what happens in the early church is we see this reality that everybody's got their keys on the table and they're saying, look, we're not going anywhere. And, and let me just point out, like if you're in the early church, where exactly would you go? right? I'm done with this church. I'm going to go to First Baptist Antioch, all right? That that church does not exist. There is one church on the planet, and so it's kind of like we're just going to live together and do this for better or for worse. So here's what I want to encourage you to do as you think of doing life together inside of this messy thing called the church, is take your cues from Jesus, who loves his church with an unconditional way of loving. And I, I love this. Like Jesus doesn't look at us and he, he doesn't say, if you could just get your act together and as soon as you stop being addicted to these things and as soon as you start doing these things, then I'm going to love you and that's what I'm going to actually be for you. That's not the way Jesus loves. The Bible says that it was when we were dead in our sin that God, who is rich in love, made us alive with Jesus. It was when we had nothing to offer that God came for us and rescued us. Jesus goes to a cross for people that are helpless and broken and wicked and sinful. And we had no part to play in that other than our brokenness. And Jesus, with his unconditional way of loving, he's not going to love us more or less based on our behavior today or tomorrow. He's not gonna love us more 10 billion years in heaven than he, than he does right now through the gospel. So as we learn from Jesus who approaches us with this unconditional way of love, it allows us to approach relationships and people inside of the church with an unconditional way of love. Do you do this with your roommates? Hey, your behavior is not how I base my affection and love and receptivity of you on. Do you do this with your spouse? Like, I don't love you because you do these things, right? It's, it's, not my, it's not my love that sustains this marriage. It's actually the marriage that sustains our love together. Like, there's no conditions here. For better or for worse, this is how I'm stepping in. Do you love people in the community group like this? It's like, there's always that guy or that girl in the community group and they're just hard and they're difficult and, and, and they think that like everybody else is the problem, but they're the problem. And it's like, how do you, listen, Jesus moves towards those people with this unconditional way of love and he doesn't put this, this like, do this, do this, do this on it. And just, yeah, I'm here, I love you. Take your cues from Jesus. Do you do this in your community? So don't love the ideal church, start loving the actual church. Number three, love the church enough to engage problems as they arise. Love the church enough to engage problems as they arise. Unconditional love does not overlook real problems. Look look at chapter six, verse one. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Is that a preference issue or is that a real problem? It's a real problem in the church. People were getting hurt and they were getting neglected. Widows are going hungry. 
what do they say in response, the people in the church? Oh, that's fine. I'm sure you meant well. No big deal. No, that actually wouldn't be a loving response to the church. Look at verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So now we see what's happening is actually this complaint went to the right people in the right way. It was a real complaint. It was a good complaint. And it got to the ears of the apostles. So one of the questions to ask yourself when you have a complaint, is this a preference issue or is this a real problem? Like, do I just want the church to sing different songs or am I saying that no, people are getting hurt and people are getting neglected and we don't need to be overlooking that as a church, right? So then the other thing to ask yourself is who is hearing these, these complaints? Is it, is it going to the right people in the right way at the right time or is it just like just kind of spreading like wildfire through my community. Verse two, the the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and look what happens. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they, they chose all those people And then look at verse six. These they set before the apostles, they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So what I love about this early church is when problems did arise, when real issues happened that that caused, caused people to have a complaint and point out error and problems in the church, it got to the right people at the right time in the right way. And then the leaders, they didn't defend themselves like, oh, well, that's not our fault. And, and, and we don't need to, no, actually what they say is we'll figure this out. Even though we don't have the margin ourselves, we will figure this out. We will step into this problem and we will deal with it. True love does not overlook sin without actually lovingly addressing it and lovingly having, having a conversation. This is true in your marriage. Ladies, true love does not overlook the sin of your husband right? It's unconditional. You don't place conditions on him. You don't say, I'll love you when you X, Y, Z. It's no, I love you. But because I love you, I love you enough to say hard things in a really loving way because I actually want your best and I want you to grow and I want you to look more like Jesus, not less. True love doesn't overlook problems in your community group. If there's someone in your community group that claims to love Jesus, claims to be a follower of Jesus, but their lifestyle has consistently been one of, of living in a way that is very anti what Jesus calls them to, then that's, that actually warrants a conversation. Not in a judgmental, legalistic way. That's a, a very humble, gracious, gospel-driven way of saying, listen, I love you. I'm here for you. My keys are on the table. We need to talk about this, though. There are things in your life that are, that are contrary to the word of God. That warrants a conversation. There are things in our church that you see that are broken and off and not as they should be. Like the elders of our church actually want to hear those things. We actually want to know what's broken and what's off and what needs to be addressed. I loved recently when uh, we did a members meeting uh, about a month ago, I think it was. We did a, a members meeting for covenant members and it was a chance for us to say, hey, here's what's going on in the life of the church Here's kind of what's going on. Here's an update. And then it gives the members of the church a chance to respond and ask questions and push back and say, hey, here, here, what about this? What about that? Coming out of that members meeting, and some of you have heard this, but we had some godly, godly, awesome ladies that came to our pastors and they said, hey, we are being overlooked in this church. 
Frontline is like unapologetically trying to create a masculine culture. Like we want to we reach men. We want to see men know Jesus and love Jesus. And, and we want to see men actually catalytically released to, to love and serve their wives and their kids in such a way that brings cultural change in our city. So we're unapologetically going to do that. But these ladies are saying, I love that. I get that. Don't stop doing that. But we are being overlooked here. And it was a chance for us as elders to realize like, okay, this is an area of weakness in our church that we've actually unintentionally hurt our ladies, especially the single ladies. And what does it look like for us to step in and to do this thing better? Because listen, there's no perfect church and we're not gonna be shocked when we find out that Frontline has a lot of flaws and a lot of failures. So this is what we're invited into out of Acts 6 is, yeah, it's gonna, it's gonna happen. There are gonna be problems. Love the, the real church as she is, but don't, don't allow that love to lead you to silence. Allow that love to lead you into the tension and engaging conversations that need to happen. And then finally, number four, here's the, the last thing I want you to see. Love the church enough to play your part. Love the church enough to play your part. Uh, l- look at this solution to the problem that they come up with in Acts 6, verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Now, can I pause there? Doesn't that sound kind of like a jerkish way to say that, right? Like you expect me to serve tables? No, I'm gonna pray and preach. Don't bother me with that stuff, right? That kind of, that's what it sounds like, but that's not what they're meaning. Read on, I'll explain verse three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose those men. Now, here's what I want you to see in this passage. This is so great that it's not that the apostles are thinking of themselves as, well, I can't serve tables. I'm an apostle of Jesus, right? No, Jesus sat down and washed their feet and gave them an example of sacrificial service. And then he goes to a cross and gives his life away for people that didn't deserve it. These apostles got the point. It's okay, we can posture ourselves in humility and serve. What was happening? The church had grown, some scholars estimate, around fourteen to 15,000 people at this point in Acts. And the apostles are trying to do everything. They're trying to preach and they're trying to spend time in prayer and they're, they're trying to uh, disciple people and they're, they're trying to open up the Bible and train and they're trying to serve widows and they're taking care of things and they're wearing multiple hats and the complexities and the problems got so great that they realized we can't do this on our own. We actually need the church to be the church and for the members of this body to function as real members because get this, pastors are just one part of the body. So Ephesians chapter, Ephesians chapter four, it says that God gave pastors to the church to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. And so what we see happen is, is actually the, the church comes to the apostles with a problem and part of the solution is for the church to step in and select men and to embrace a new aspect of ministry and fix this problem. Under, underneath the leadership, underneath the, the oversight of the apostles, but the church stepped into new roles of ministry. 
Here's what I so desperately want for Frontline. I think we have this, this thing that happens because Frontline tends to, you know, as you come through the doors, it's like, well, they must have everything together and they've got coffee and, and it looks like everybody's giving and, and, and they're paying for their facility somehow. So I'm sure like people are engaged and, and things are just happening and there's, there's people in the kids ministry. So obviously this, this is a big church and they don't need my help. Not true, not true, not true, right? It's scary because everybody thinks that. So then like nothing actually, you know, we're like, no, we actually need your help. And, and there are a lot of things that you as members or attenders, you see and you notice and you say, man, I wish this was different. I wish this was better. I wish that could, man, we could really grow in these things. And I just want to say to you, that might be Jesus's loving invitation to you to actually embrace a new ministry. Some of you are like, man, the kids ministry is a train wreck. You know, it's, it's so hard. Well, listen, like we get that. It, especially in our South Oklahoma City congregation and our Edmond congregation, it's like someone kicked over a baby anthill and babies are just going everywhere, all right? And so as the church grows in complexity, we don't need more complainers. We need more like contributors to the problem. You go, man, like it's so frustrating that you'll have such a small staff and it's so hard to get in touch with anybody. And it's like, well, we actually need people to give sacrificially to the mission of God. Like there are so many things that I could, I could say, but if you don't know where you fit, if you don't know if there's a need, let me just say over and over and very loudly, we have needs. We need you to step in. This is a very messy but beautiful thing. And Jesus isn't just asking pastors to accomplish his mission. He's inviting all of us into both the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of his kingdom. There is a place for you somewhere. We need your help, right? There's like one person really excited, like, yes, thank you for that. I love you, whoever you are, right? We need every member to play. So let me close with this. Some of us today, looking at chapter six, some of us, if we're honest, we need to repent of living on a quest for the ideal church. Some of you are looking for the ideal church, and especially in the Bible Belt, weird post-Christian culture of Oklahoma, we've gotten really good at church shopping and church hopping. Right? Do they have the music I like? And do they have the preaching I like? And do they, and do, they do this thing? Right? So we, we become very good at viewing this church really more like a cruise liner than a battleship. Do you know what I mean by that? Like a cruise liner, why do you take a cruise? You take a cruise so that you will be served like crazy. You take a cruise so that you will be in, entertained. You take a cruise to be fed. When you take a cruise, it's all about you. The church is not a cruise liner The church is a battleship. Jesus has launched us into mission into this world and we are here not to be entertained. We're here for the mission of God so that people that don't know Jesus will come to know Jesus so that people that are far from God will be brought close to God so that people are in darkness will be brought into the light. You have a role to play in this and some of you today, Jesus wants you to repent of going on that weird quest of trying to find the perfect church. It doesn't exist. Love who she really is, not who you think she should be. Fight to see who she really should be, but repent of not loving her for who she is. And then some of you, if you're to be honest, you would say, yeah, but Andrew, it's really hard for me to love the church 
because I've been burned and I've been hurt so many times. And I'm afraid, and this is true of relationships. This is true of those of you in marriage. This is true of those of you that are single. It's hard for you sometimes even relationally if you've been hurt to give your heart away to be vulnerable because to be vulnerable means that you have the possibility of getting hurt. And so let me just read you these words of C.S. Lewis real fast from an amazing book, The Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping intact, keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal, wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in the casket, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So today, some of you need to repent for not loving the church, but then others of you, you just need to come to Jesus today with an open heart and say, God, it's hard for me to love. It's hard for me to love people. It's hard for me to love my spouse. It's hard for me to love my roommates. It's hard for me to love the church because I'm afraid of getting hurt. Would you heal my heart today so that I can be vulnerable again and love the way you love. And the greatest example of this is Jesus, who came in the most vulnerable way, didn't stay in the safety of heaven, but stepped into the messiness of your life and my life. And out of a love for us, didn't just have his heart broken, but had his body and soul crushed on a cross so that you and I could be made whole and forgiven and redeemed.